Welcome to the Journal of Neurophysiology's podcast series. Today, Editor-in-Chief Nino Ramirez and Associate Editor Professor John Krakauer will be discussing JNP's new article type, The Neurocene. So let's get started. Hello, everybody. It's really exciting for me to explain to you a little bit what we mean with Neurocene. Neurocene was an idea that was conceived by John Krakauer, who basically noticed that there is a gap in essays, in in long-form opinion uh, articles. And since this is a broad range, we thought it's good to introduce to you this article and what we expect, what we hope to get and and where we are. So John, if you wanna basically tell us what was the main motivation for making this article form available for German neurophysiology. Thanks, Nino. Yes, I mean, I, I, I think that I was becoming aware in general of sort of the resurgence of the essay form um, across the culture, you know, in the introduction on the website, you know, I talk about journals like Eon, Nautilus, Quanta, Inference, and other such journals, not to mention all the more general cultural essays out there at at magazines like The Point, N Plus One, uh, and others. And that a lot of opinion was going in short form on Twitter and on blogs. But, you know, the venerable tradition of of essay writing, you know, that arguably dates back to the 16th century and wasn't really being given the attention it deserves in academic science. So I thought that, you know, we have review articles, we have perspectives, book reviews have tended to fall out of favor at journals. There are Q and A's, there are short biographies sometimes, but sort of a more interdisciplinary form of essay where the history, the philosophy, the science, biography all come together was missing. And I thought that it would be nice to bring that back. And most importantly, to bring it back in a way that was actually recognized. It was on PubMed, you know, it was at a significant journal, and, and, and to invite more cross-disciplinary talk without the burden of always having to have definitive positions, definitive data, final answers. In other words, this like a Michelangelo half-finished sculpture sort of rising out of the marble, but not being finished, that kind of idea. <laughs> I think it's, uh, there's, there are lots of those uh, questions out in, in neuroscience. And I think it's really timely because it will push us to the current edge of knowledge. And, and I think the understanding of the brain is the last frontiers in science really. And, and it would be a shame if, if we can't really represent this leading edge of knowledge uh, in, in some sort of format. And I think the essay is one of those avenues where we can ask questions that are really not addressed in, in normal articles or in even reviews. Yes, I mean, and also, because it is so interesting, right? There are neuroscience institutes being built everywhere. There are brain initiatives in every country. You know, we've gotten to sort of industrial neuroscience. You know, it's, they're becoming like secular churches. Neuroscience is the new place to get your answers. It was God and now it's neuroscience. And uh, so I think that it deserves to be thought about and intersected with uh, in many ways. Yeah. I noticed that there's often also big investments 
in neuroscience related questions. There's this whole, you know, like connectome, for example. Yes. There is the idea that, okay, if we do the genome of all the autistic kids, we'll better understand, you know, autism, which is a neurological disorder in a way. And so the question is, you know, how valid are these investments and and what do we have to think? You know, where is the proof of principle that we get the answers that we want? And I think the essay, the neuroscene essay, could be one of those uh, avenues to to raise these questions. Yeah, uh, I mean, you, you know, the sky's the limit. In other words, you know, anything where you feel like neuroscientific questions intersect with the general culture, with assumptions, with history, you know, you want to develop a sort of narrative about a particular topic at these crossroads, then, you know, this would be a place to do it. You know, philosophers of science would be welcome to try and submit stuff. Obviously, neuroscientists could, psychologists could. In other words, that's the other thing, is it would make people in sort of neighboring disciplines be welcome to submit, right? It would open up the journal as a forum that goes beyond its usual content. Yeah, and I think it's uh, particularly relevant for the journal Neurophysiology because, you know, physiology is way broader than just neuro. And there's so much, you know, overlap with like kinematics, behavior, and as you say, psychology, computational sciences. And it will really be a good avenue for this interdisciplinary approach that we really aspire to as, as a journal. And, you know, just as an example, I mean, you know, I... It's out for review at the moment that we have our first submission uh, from Jessica Thompson, who's now at Oxford. And, you know, the title of her submission is Explanation and Understanding for Neuroscience and AI, Artificial Intelligence. So it's directly addressing what do we mean by explanation? What do we mean by understanding? How can they differ with respect to artificial intelligence and neuroscience? How can they mutually inform each other? You know, what's at stake? Which field should one go into if one wants to understand how the brain works? You have a competitor now. You can go to DeepMind instead of going to a neuroscience department. So there are lots of really rich ideas. Things keep come back in with new names. In other words, as Santayana said, those who know no history are doomed to repeat it. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are many things that seem to be new, uh, but are not, right? You can have behaviorism and then there's reinforcement learning you know, there's connectionism, now there are neural networks. How different conceptually are these things? Um, Absolutely. It's also important for the potential submitting author that we will peer review these, these neuroscene articles. I think you will be the person that curates these. And so it would be good if you inquire for the submissions uh, before you submit, or what's your opinion to that, John? Yes. I mean, first of all, they're not going to be commissioned. So our spirit is going to be of openness and delight when something is suggested. And I've had some really fascinating inquiries already on really disparate, fascinating topics. Um, all one wants is for it to be scholarly, but the aim is to be very inclusive. Anything that one feels lives at this interface, which is a lot, just let me know and tell me about what the topic is, maybe provide an abstract. But really, we the sky's the limit about what can be written about. I mean, I've been approached about an interesting one right now is the history of, of, of measurement of humans. You know, we live in a world now of apps and wearables. 
And so what does that mean to be the measured human now and to be and have all your physiological signals on your eye, you know, Apple Watch or the Aura Ring? What does it mean suddenly to be monitored all the time? Uh, it's a fascinating topic, right? And then machine yeah. learning algorithms, which will interpret all this stuff that you have on your body. Uh, so somebody's suggesting a sort of cultural history of the quantified self. That's fascinating, right? Um, <laughs> I have... Um... I had an undergraduate, Kathy Nagel, who is now a professor at NYU. And she kind of like jokes always that when she came to my lab, I gave her a ruler to analyze respiratory rhythms. And she said, well, we, we went far from that. And <laughs> nowadays, it really, there are so many opportunities. We have like uh, patient data where we can now combine it. We want to share databases. And right. So these are, you know, what's the history of that? What are the implications of that? Um, how mm -hmm. new is it? Uh, you know, I have somebody else who would like to write about, you know, when Cajal was working in Spain, what was happening in Portugal, right? Sort of Iberian neuroscience. I mean, there's so many fascinating topics that are a mixture of cultural, but still require some specialty knowledge. And there isn't really a place for this hybrid form, this double form. And uh, this could become really first in class, first of its kind. And, and I'm very excited about it. And we discussed already, uh, when we discussed our Neurovision article, that there will be some overlap between the two, you know, where, you know, the Neurovision has this idea also to be, you know, free format and addressing big questions and combining, you know, actually new experimental data with ideas for for the future yeah so i mean i think yeah absolutely i think the, the difference might be that if a historian of science um, or a philosopher of science wants to write for the neuroscene they're just as allowed to write as as a practicing neuroscientist i i feel like neurovision might be more the domain of data generating scientists whereas neuroscene you can be in the humanities and be absolutely welcome to write there so in other words i, I like that absolutely difference but yes but it's more just long form, in-depth dives into topics that are never isolated, right? They, they are embedded in their time and place. They have a history uh, and a present and a future. And, you know, I, th I think one wants to sort of reignite sort of that interest in that kind of multidisciplinary writing. That's what I'm hoping for. Do you uh, expect also social topics like society related issues that are hot topics right now? Or yes, I mean, I absolutely do. I mean, I think if they can be polemical in so much they touch on a topic of, of interest, but they have to be scholarly, but, but absolutely. For example, another essay that I'm very much hoping will come through is women in, in neuroscience, in primate neuroscience in the mid 20th century. In other words, work that was done that gets relatively less cited, right? I, I think that's really interesting. I think figures in science we owe a debt to whose biographies have not been told. I think that it would be very nice to, to have those people um, brought to the front again. There are, you know, I'm really not a, in any way averse to topics which might be a little bit controversial. I mean, if somebody wants to write about the history of the Nobel Prize and why almost everyone who's won it is white, they should be allowed to write that essay, right? I think that would be really interesting. Absolutely. <laughs> right. In other words, that should be welcomed. If there's a 
new Bruno Latour out there who can talk about the, the politics and psychology and sociology of the modern laboratory, that should be written. Mm -hmm. um, you know, lab design, why do labs all look kind of the same, right? There, there's so many topics that people don't get to read about, right? Um, and I think we have to become better at sending out, you know, our hounds to commission such essays. And, you know, the architecture of neuro neuroscience departments, you know, there, there are just so many interesting topics that people don't think about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, departments versus institutes, you know, like, do you, do you think like, for example, discussing like tenure positions, career of a neuroscientist? Yeah, of course, I think everything is possible. Everything right? is possible as long as it has, you know, it, it, you want it to give the people the feeling, oh, I never thought about that. I never saw it from that angle. I didn't realize that's where that came from. You know, I, it, you, you want people to realize that everything that you take for granted deserves a second and a third look and things aren't as simple and as established as you think. Absolutely. Right? And, you know, Montaigne, who arguably brought forth the modern essay, always talked about the double self that we do and we do not know each other. You know, we, we think we know things, but we don't really. That oscillating doubt is just as present in science and one has to bring that out. And maybe the essay allows you to express all your doubts, whereas you have to sound so certain and definitive in traditional articles. Here you can talk about, you know, the worries, the uncertainties. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you, you raise an important point that, you know, the current research article format doesn't allow you you know, to put in ideas that don't relate to your data. You know, like you, you basically report your data, you discuss how these data, you know, have strengths and weaknesses, how they relate to, to existing data, but it doesn't allow you to, to tell the story why you did this study, what do you want to address as a big picture, what are the concepts that drove you there. It's, it's very difficult to put that in. And we, we have the podcast series in a way to address this a little bit in a discussion, but I think we don't have that in an, in an essay format that allows you to, to really go way deeper into analyzing and researching an opinion, you know? Yes, I mean, right, there can be scientists who do that. And then, you know, why is it that there was a paper not that long ago, I remember looking at the popularity of cortical areas the prefrontal cortex versus the parietal cortex versus the <laughs> temporal lobe versus, you know, and that certain cortical areas get much more attention in terms of both papers and citations. You know, yeah. primary sensory cortex is considered a little bit boring, for example. Depends so, on who you ask, I guess. No, no, but I mean, this is actually all based on data. I'm not saying it. I'm just saying uh -huh. in terms of what gets covered, right? These oh, are all yeah. very interesting things, right? So, you know, I just want people to know that this, you know, these essays could get more widely disseminated, right? They could be read outside of the usual circles, you know, that might get the attention of essay compilations at the end of the year. That there are just many ways that one could be subversive in a good way here. Yeah, I've heard, for example, that this whole dopamine hypothesis on schizophrenia is one example where, you know, it was a nice hypothesis based on the medications that help in schizophrenia, some symptoms, but it kind of 
led to a selection of what kind of articles are accepted in this area and uh, that kind of further strengthen this hypothesis without really questioning what is the real data behind it. And I think there's a lot of those dogmas that exist in the, in the sure. field. That, I mean, it hasn't yeah. been a, a, a really a fundamental new psychiatric drug in almost half a century, Yeah. right? Um, most of the drug companies have simply tweaked existing drugs, changed their side effect profiles and things like that. So why is that? What happened to psychiatry, right? It, you know, there have been a number of papers on that and books even. But oh, I know. Yeah, it's exactly like, psych yeah, psychiatry it's, versus neurology. And yeah, and, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, wonderful essay once on why Freud went from neurology to psychiatry. And yeah, so there's, there's just many, many things. I think what we need to do is simply use our contacts to invite people, make people in other areas realize that they're not sort of venturing into pure scientific territory by trying to get something at the genre of physiology. I've certainly noticed in, on Twitter, people being quite interested in the existence of this essay form and considering it. Um, now, obviously what makes these things difficult is if you want to be promoted in a humanity or you wanna you know, be in philosophy of science, then you know, it may well be that tenure committees are gonna go, well, we wanna see your essays at NAUS or Synthes or MIND, general neurophysiology doesn't really cut it. Um, but that's not completely true, right? I worked with a philosopher, we wrote a, an essay, an opinion piece called uh, Motor Skills Depend on Knowledge of Facts. Uh, that actually went to one of the Frontiers journals, Frontiers in Neuroscience. And it's had a huge amount of interest, got cited, I think over 200 times by philosophers and has been engaged a lot with. So I would imagine the same would happen with these neuroscience articles, that they would be noticed and commented upon outside the traditional science community. That is exciting. Absolutely. Hopefully that we inspire interdisciplinary submissions yeah. And, yeah. and from all sorts of uh, backgrounds. And so, so do you have a recommendation for the length of these? Uh, yes. I mean, I think anywhere between four and 7,000 words. In other words, enough to sort of treat the topic with the depth that it deserves and to you know, not make it a fragment. But I'm not going to be rigid about it. In other words, there could be a fantastic essay that's a little shorter. There could be an amazing one that requires more. I think it's really about knowing that you have the freedom to give the topic the depth that it requires uh, and to be able to sort of unpack the arguments and talk about the history and the philosophy, be a little bit didactic. Like Jessica's piece, you know, is really trying to teach neuroscientists and people in artificial intelligence about some of the thinking the philosophers have done and what it means to offer an explanation. What does it mean to understand something? You know, what is a theory? What is a law? What is a mechanism, right? These are words that people use and yet don't really know how those evolved and what the differences between them are. And you know, Jessica's written a really lovely essay helping people understand these notions and applying them to topics that obviously are very dear to us. John, as, as for references, what are the, the ideas like referring to literature, referring to others? Do, do we expect these neuroscience articles to have 
references? Or? Yes, absolutely. I think it's really important that almost because we want them to be acts of scholarship, we want people to be able to look up books and articles that are relevant. I mean, I don't think we're going to quibble to the same degree that you have to cite the very first paper ever written with the very <laughs> original data. Um, but you do want to, I mean, one of the great joys of essays like this is the very esoteric lists of references that they provide. You know, papers you would never have believed even got written, areas of interdisciplinarity that one wouldn't even have known about, right? In other words, I often find when it comes to good essays that the references are almost a second bite of the apple. So I, I do think that references are important. Yes. What about figures that kind of like explain your concept or your opinion, etc.? Look, I mean, I was recently talking, I was just today on a call with philosophers. Um, there's a book uh, called Representation and Cognitive Science by Nick Shea, and I, with two others, were asked to write commentaries on that book. And um, I talk in my review about all the findings on pissed frogs, right? In the middle of the 19th century, you could see that these frogs could do remarkable things, although just they were spinal preparations, right? They had been pissed. And some of the drawings of these frogs performing are quite beautiful, right? And I think if you can put nice Cajal quality black and white <laughs> um, drawings in prints, absolutely. Um, what one, if one feels like one wants to show a drawing or something classical or something modern, absolutely, yes. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. I, certainly they don't have to be just data slides. It can be a painting, it can be a portrait, anything. Right. It, Fantastic. You feel like it increases the scholarship. So, John, we, we will have a review process. And uh, do you have some ideas already how we will review this? Who do we want to, you know, because we're talking about an opinion. And of course, we don't want to limit opinions based on a reviewer's input. Yeah, it's actually. What's been, the role of the reviewer here? Yeah, it's an interesting thing. In other words, at the moment, this first piece it is under review. It's currently under review by three reviewers, two philosophers and a neuroscientist. Um, I have told them that this is not to be reviewed as a primary piece of either philosophy or science scholarship. In other words, I'm interested to see how they review. I, of course, will make sure that it doesn't become treated like a regular manuscript. But I do think that, you know, it, it should be well-written, it should be enjoyable, um, it should be cogent, um, it shouldn't miss sight or just make things up, right? So in other words, I think it should be treated the way a New Yorker article gets edited and fact-checked, mm -hmm. right? I but think maybe for the readers, it's also, important note for the authors, the future authors, it's important that we actually have also consultation sessions. So basically, if we get uh, the opinions of reviewers, we can open up the consultation and discuss, you know, the different opinions and weigh in, you know, like, and, and come to a recommendation and, and going forward. But I think it will be a learning process. My, my, my guess is, I think people will be up to it. They'll understand that this is 
not a traditional paper, but it's not just a review and it's not a perspective. And my guess is that people will learn how to review just as much as people will learn how to write this kind of a piece, right? In other words, if you wanna write an article on lesser known work of Sherrington, then you can, but we're gonna to have to make sure that he actually wrote that stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, John, and I think another idea would be to, to have combinations. So it, it's not only one person writing an essay, but it would be great if a philosopher works together with an experimentalist or a mathematician works together with a philosopher. Absolutely, right? I mean, that piece I told you about, about motor skill was written by me and a philosopher at Yale, very well-known philosopher, actually, Jason Stanley. Uh, the piece that I wrote with David Barat that just came out in Nature Reviews Neuroscience on the 15th of April, you know, he's a card-carrying philosopher as well as a neuroscientist. And that was commissioned by Nature Reviews Neuroscience. They asked me to do something. And so I said, I wanted to write a piece with a philosopher. So that's out and getting there already been two little symposia about it already, <laughs> right? Look at so, that, John. So in other words, you're absolutely right. You want to very much support people coming together who usually don't write together. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, and, and they might have even different opposing opinions, correct? So that would be also very cool, you know, like uh, have a discussion and, and, and use that in an essay format. And you can have interviews, you can have a back and forth, you can have point counterpoint, you can have a book review, you could do an interview. I mean, I'm very open to the format, right? In other words, yeah. it, it's completely open. And, and John, I think it's also important to mention that we will do a podcast for all these Neurocene articles that then allows us also to further discuss the topic and then and get some background maybe about the author. I definitely feel like there should be a Neuroscene podcast, perhaps, which is more about this kind of content versus just the discussions about the data on traditional papers. That's my feeling. Absolutely. I yeah. think you could get a lot of attention by having a more cultural neuro podcast that perhaps combines Neurovision and Neuroscene and invites people on to debate, you know, and maybe you know, you should take a look at Brain Inspired and some of the others, because that would get the journal neurophysiology a lot of attention without making people feel like most of the podcast is going into detail on traditional scientific papers. Well, I want to argue that, in fact, our current podcasts are very broad, and we try to, to escape kind of the, the stringent kind of format often a research article and, and discuss, you know, the story behind this, you know, what's the involvement of the the students in there, you know, like how do you really try to address big pictures using experimental approaches? So, so typically we really try to actually expand the vision that you cannot present in a normal research article. So I think that's one of the, the ideas, but I, as I said, I think the Neuroscene article really is an, is an avenue for going after these big questions and, and big issues that-, that Yeah, we, and it becomes a nexus. People go, oh, something's going on there, right? There, there's some ferment there. There's, there, there, there. People are beginning to get in on the action now. What's going on there? Do you see? Something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so John, I mean, any final thoughts that we should emphasize uh, for the, the authors, the potential authors, except of 
hey, we're open to all your ideas. We're excited to see your, your essays. We think this will be an important part of journal neurophysiology and what kind of inspiring last words could we? I would, I would say that anyone who has interests at any stage in their career where they got into neuroscience because they were interested in how it related to a medical problem, how it related to sci-fi, right? Or other interests that they had and they want to sort of ignite their inner geek or nerd and feel like they have other things on their mind that don't fit into the confines of a regular manuscript, this is the place to submit something. You know, you, somebody who's senior and, and noticed over the years trends and developments and things that have been forgotten and other things that have been hyped and can't help notice such things. And they want to somehow write something deep about the trajectory of their field. This is a place to go. Or someone who is junior and then enters a field and realizes, oh my God, where are all these dogmas coming from where we are stuck? So all Sure, I mean, it's just, but, but, but again, it, it's not just 400, 500 words of gentle disgruntlement. I would prefer <laughs> something that is written in such a way that somebody could read it in 10 years time and go, this is a very self-contained, almost timeless document. Which brings me to the emphasis where the name came from is maybe, John, you could tell us the timeless aspect of the Neurocene article. Where is the name coming from? Yes. I mean, I chose Neurocene, as you know, because I wanted it to be simultaneously about right now, like the Anthropocene, right? And I also wanted it to have that feeling of extended geological time. So I wanted it to be both synchronic, about now, and I wanted to be about diachronic, about what the French call the long durée, this longer time course. So I, I wanted it to capture the present and the fact that it will also be part of the continuum from the past into the present. So that's where it came from. So you're a without an S. <laughs> <laughs> John, it's a great pleasure and it's a great honor to have you uh, curate this, this article format. And I really look forward to our submissions and I hope that our listeners got inspired to submit. And as I said, we're very flexible with regards to format. We want to have substance and we want to have something with longevity. So John, it's a great honor to work with you and we will have a great fun reading them, I guess. Yes. So all, everyone listening, please start thinking about what you'd like to submit. You will be greeted with open arms. Great. Yeah. Realize your urge to write and we'll, we'll look forward to this. Thank you so much, John. Take care. And all the very best. And Thank we you. Look forward Bye. To Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. This podcast was brought to you by the Journal of Neurophysiology and produced by me, Jamie Jones. If you would like to hear our latest episodes, please visit the Journal of Neurophysiology's homepage.